Mindfulness Mode 342. If we can think of one little tiny thing to be grateful for, even in the midst of a world of hurt. Welcome to the Mindfulness Mode podcast. I'm Bruce Langford, host and creator of Mindfulness Mode and Mindfulness Life Coach. Like I said, so great to have you with us. And if it's your first time, we're very, very grateful to have you here. On the last episode, I featured an interview I had with Dr. Ivan Meisner, and he shared how he was bullied when he was in elementary school and how that one incident was, in a way, the catalyst for him becoming the founder of this global-wide networking organization called BNI standing for Business Network International. If you haven't heard this episode, don't miss it. Go back and and listen to it for sure. It's episode 341. And as you probably know, you can type in mindfulnessmode.com slash 341. And that takes you directly to the episode on the website or search it up on whatever app you're listening on. Maybe it's Spotify, Overcast, CastBox, These are all great places to listen, as well as the Podbean app. Check that one out because I have a lot of listeners on Podbean app. So if you're one of those, here's a shout out to you. Now, I just am finishing working on a little mini ebook that I think you'll enjoy, and it's free for you, Mindfulness Mode listeners. It's called 12 Must Read Mindfulness Books. And these are the most recommended books on the Mindfulness Mode podcast to help you become more calm, focused, and happy. And believe me, these 12 books are all winners. They're fantastic books. So I I made this into a little mini ebook, like I said, and you can get this by going to mindfulnessmode.com slash top 12 books. And it's yours free. Just put in your email address, your name and your email address, and I'll send you out this book. 12 must-read mindfulness books. I hope you like this. Today, Sandra Miller's Younger. She's an author. She's all about helping you come back from setbacks. Wow. And she really had a setback. I won't tell you right now what it is. You'll hear in a second. But it was a major setback in her life. And now she's all about helping others. She's the founder of Comeback Solutions International. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Sandra Miller's Younger. Mindful Tribe, I have a wonderful guest with me today, and her name is Sandra. Sandra, are you in mindfulness mode today? I am, Bruce. I'm happy to be here with you. And I'm happy to be here with you as well. You have an incredible story to share, and you have a wonderful way of sharing because I was just mentioning, I love your writing. I just find it so compelling. It draws me in, and you have a tremendous ability to package some of your ideas because when I met you at the New Media Summit, not only was I impressed by your presentation, but you handed me a book that you had put together and you told me about how you put those images together and you you made that all happen fairly quickly. And, yeah. fairly, you know, I was just like, whoa, look at this. So you're a very talented lady, but are you in mindfulness mode right now? Absolutely, yes. 
That's good. I want to share a little of being right here right now. And I'm excited about what we have to share and what will just naturally unfold for your listeners. Right in this moment. Absolutely. Sandra Miller's Younger helps people build personal resilience as a result of a tragedy that she experienced. And this was in 2003, Sandra lost her home and nearly her life in a catastrophic California wildfire. And in her book about the disaster, the book is called The Fire Outside My Window, she just draws the reader in. And she's been praised by Amazon reviewers and studied by top-level emergency professionals. After the fire, Sandra discovered personal resilience is both a natural strength and a skill set we can build like a muscle. Combining her own experience with leading academic research, she developed the comeback formula, which is trademarked, and it's five common sense practices that transform disaster into opportunity and loss into legacy. Sandra now shares her resilience-boosting message as an international speaker and frequent media guest. So I'm honored to have you here today, Sandra. And don't we all need resilience and a little bit more of it? We need it every day. It's not just for big tragedies and catastrophes. It's for little things that just eat away at us and seem like setbacks. So there's a reason why we're all innately resilient it's because we do need it all the time well i'm impressed at how you were able to take a tragedy such a a, an extreme tragedy is what you went through and take a positive spin from that how long did it take you before you were able to you know see the positive from that i was blessed because i saw it right away oh And that is one of the biggest um, realizations that I took away from my fire experience was that we have the freedom to choose our response, no matter what happens to us. And very early on, I realized that I had a choice to make. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had been just traveling along the super highway of life with everyone else. And suddenly I got shunted off onto this other road and there were very few people on this other road. And it seemed to me that there were possibilities down that road. Um, And I had paid a great price without my consent, but I had paid a great price to be on this other road with very few people. So why not get my money's worth? Why not decide to be, to embrace the possibilities of a new future instead of sitting by the side of the road and and mourning my old future that could never come back. So that was when I realized very early on that, um, that I could choose, I could make that decision to turn what had seemed to be a catastrophe and possibly even a tragedy, certainly for my neighbors who died, a tragedy. I, I had the option to transform that into something positive. 
Wow. And you, it sounded like you just got out in the nick of time. You woke up we in the night did. and the, the flames were glowing in the window and you were just rushing around, grabbing a few things, just and looking for the car keys and trying exactly. to, you know, get yourself out of there and thinking, oh man, will we make it? And, and it was just, you just conveyed that feeling in the book so clearly that, you know, that panic. And yet you weren't totally panicked really, but you were just, just, so it was so urgent. There was an urgency and, and you did get out. Tell us a little bit in your words, what that was like. We, well, you just captured it really well. Thank you for reading my book. We did wake up in the middle of the night in this beautiful house. We'd only lived in for seven months. We had abandoned our empty nest in the suburbs and thought, let's change it up. This is a new part of our lives. And we found this beautiful house in a canyon about 30 miles um, east of San Diego is where we're talking about. And in the middle of the night, um, one windy, hot October night, we woke up to the sight of fire outside our window. That's where the title of my book came from. So exactly as you said, we started rushing around, grabbing our animals. We had these two big shaggy Newfoundland dogs and a little brainless cockatiel. And we shoved her in a traveling cage. We grabbed the keys to the car we could find and hopped in and happened to be my car. So I was driving and yes, the fire was wrapping around our home as we left. So we had no extra time and there was only one way out, Bruce. This was the really frightening part. It was, we were sitting on the side of a mountain. So we had to drive down this very narrow ribbon of asphalt that was literally carved into the side of the mountain. And just as we got to the most treacherous part we hit the smoke and we couldn't see anything. And I started screaming to my husband, I can't see the road. And, and he yelled back, well, just don't wreck the car, which, which is the comic relief of this story. Because what he meant was don't drive off the side of this mountain. Right. And in fact, 12 of our neighbors died in the fire doing the same things we were doing at the same time. And most of them because they got lost in the smoke and drove off the road. So here we are at this really dangerous point. And at that moment, a bobcat jumped out of the brush by the side of the road right to our headlights. And something in me knew that the cat was on the road I couldn't see. He dashed away into the smoke right away. And something in me knew to follow him. So I followed this bobcat. And That is what kept us on the road and enabled us to then find our way inch by inch out of this fire, um, driving at times through flames. And where did you go and how did you deal with it, with the fact that you had no home then? Yes, suddenly we were homeless, you know, and even worse, people were calling us fire victims, which didn't make sense because we'd survived. You know, our Mm -hmm. our house was a victim. Our house and um, almost 2,500 other homes burned that week in San Diego. But we had survived. And where do you go? That's the thing is you just want to go home. You just want to go home. As we're speaking, there's so many people in Guatemala and, and Hawaii who have been displaced by volcanic eruptions and their home, their whole community is just gone forever. It, it, it's buried now under mm-hmm. lava and ash and they can't go home. And this is 
what we want. We want just to go home. Where did we go? And initially, we, we didn't have any relatives in the area. We called some friends who weren't home. We went to a hotel. We had to kind of scrounge around in the middle of the night and find a place that would take two giant dogs and uh, and a bird. And our only other luggage was a plastic laundry basket that I had thrown some pictures in off the dresser and and off the wall. And that's where we went for about 10 days until we could rent a house um, and rebuild. But all that time, we just wanted to be home. That's a really strong urge. Right. And when did you get the idea to uh, teach others about resiliency based on your experience? It took me a while. It took me a while. I had the idea. I had the idea way before I had the courage and maybe this is going to land with someone in your audience. If you have this drive, this, 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 just an idea of something you want to do, keep pursuing it because I knew, uh, I knew immediately my job was to write this book because I was a journalist. I'd Mm -hmm. been a journalist all my life. My degrees are in journalism. And I realized I, it was my job to capture the story for posterity. I realized this was a historic event. I, I had a feeling that people were going to study it, which did happen. So I set out to write the book. And as I was finishing that project, which, by the way, took far longer than I ever imagined, the book came out on the 10-year anniversary of the fire. But I thought, what do I want to do next? And along the way, um, during our own comeback journey, our own recovery and writing this book and interviewing over a hundred people, I had discovered these principles of resilience we're going to talk about. And I decided, wow, this is great stuff to share. And I think what I want to do next is, is be a speaker and share what I've learned about resilience. So I set out on that path, but I got cold feet mm-hmm. and here's why, because, um, I joined a group, a business development group, so I could learn how to be a speaker and how to package this material. And there were so many people in that group who, to me, had way deeper losses. And so I started discounting my own story as not tragic enough. Oh. Don't we discount ourselves as being yeah. not enough, not, we're not, you know, we're not skinny enough or we're not glamorous enough, and we're not tall enough, and we're not short enough, and we're not smart enough. My story was not tragic enough in my mind mm-hmm. to give me the ability, the credibility to stand up in front of a, of a group of people and talk about coming back from disaster. Because in my mind, I had only lost my stuff, whereas some people, God forbid, had lost children. And that that stopped me for about two or three years. And then as, uh, as we know, God, the universe has a sense of humor. So um, the first time I had the nerve to talk about resilience in any way to share this comeback formula, um, I did it for a friend. I didn't even charge her a speaking fee. She, she just asked me to speak to this group she was convening. And it was a group of 500 people and only one person followed up with me. And she was the very person that I had most been concerned about offending. She had lost a child and she had created a foundation to honor that child and to help others um, to save other children from the cardiac abnormality that had killed her son. 
she's the one who said to me, when you told your story, it felt like you were telling my story, Mm. which I could hardly believe. But I think what she was resonating with was that comeback part, that, that ability, as we said from the outset, to turn a tragedy into a blessing, to leverage her own loss into a legacy for other people, which is what she's done, which is what I am working to do. And that gave me the courage to start talking about resilience in a wider way. Right. And, you know, so many of us need that help with resilience. And and sometimes, like you've pointed out, it can be something that doesn't even seem that major that has pulled us back, that has locked us into a place. So tell us about someone else that you've helped through what you do. I work a lot with emergency responders, and as we all know, they are our heroes, right? They are the ones who run into the disaster as it's unfolding while the rest of us are running for our lives. Right. And early on, after the fire outside my window came out, remember I said I had this premonition that people yes. were going to study this incident out of all the fires that have happened and that I felt compelled to document it thoroughly and accurately. They, the firefighters did find my book and unbeknownst to me, They were working on a course, a three-day course for top-level incident commanders. These are the people who come in and and take over a disaster as it's happening and manage it. And uh, they decided to use, as a case study, the Cedar Fire that I wrote about. Mm -hmm. They did not know I was writing my book. I did not know they they were planning this course. And it all came together at exactly the same moment when they were about ready to launch a beta version of the course and they found my book, which had just come out. So the firefighters found me and invited me to be a part of the team that um, puts this course together for you firefighters out there. It's called L580 Leading in Catastrophe and it's sponsored by the International Association of Fire Chiefs, IAFC. So we have been working together. I'm a presenter. We do it twice a year. They use my book as a text for their case study and they learn how to manage all of the many dimensions of a rapidly unfolding catastrophe. So I am so privileged and honored to have been able to speak um, and work and do workshops for these emergency managers, not just the firefighters, but the people um, in emergency management as a career. And um, they do usually warm up to this material. They appreciate the fact that even though I'm not a mental health professional, that I have lived my story and that I am someone, as they put it, on the other side of the door they knock on, who understands their, um, their task and also understands the incredible stress and trauma that is inherent in their job. And part of my goal there in working with our responders is to just add my voice to this growing awareness that it's okay to ask for help. Right. Well, you obviously did a lot of research for your book because when you read the book, it comes across you know, all the detail about fire and how it spreads and how they fight the fire and how yeah. they used to fight the fire and how differently that's done today. Yes. You just did so much research and it, it just <laughs> came right off the page like, wow, this is like, this is the real deal. I'm really learning about firefighting here as well as the uh, personal experience 
experience that you and your husband went through. Yeah, well, thanks for noticing. That's why it took me 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I can understand why. That was a ton of research you did. But yeah, I can understand why they wanted you to speak for their event and help to teach others. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm interested in in what mindfulness, what role that played through all this. Was mindfulness a part of your life in 2003 when you lost your home? Not really. Not yeah. really, Bruce. And that's one of the great lessons that I learned is that um, there are these blessings, this unexpected um, boatload of blessings that comes in the wake of disasters. And that was one of them for my Mm -hmm. husband, Bob, and me. Um, You know, we had grown up in in the church and Mm -hmm. thought we were spiritual people. And, you know, we were to the ability, to to the extent that we had evolved at that point in our lives. You know, I don't want to diss the people we were then, but after the fire, um, what we noticed was that the people we had always expected to come to your aid whenever you have some big tragedy uh, didn't. And the people, uh, I'm going out on a limb here, the people the church had told us to be suspicious of were Mm. the ones who came to our aid. Um, The people the church um, says are wrong. The people the church says are outside of of, the Spirit's will for our lives. These are the people who came to our aid. And it really rocked our world. It opened our eyes. And we started looking for other approaches to spirituality. And we talked with some very dear friends of ours um, and said, what do we do here? The church let us down. They, They didn't even notice our congregation didn't even notice that we were in the fire. And um, they later apologized for that in a very elegant, sincere way. But it was, it was, again, a great lesson to us that opened our eyes to a much wider um, view, a much more inclusive view of, of the world of people and of approaches to spirituality. And one of those principles we learned was this whole idea of mindfulness. So we talked to this friend and um, we said, you know, we don't even feel comfortable in our old system anymore, you know, and where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Are we the only ones who feel this way? And he directed us to uh, a wonderful man, a a teacher. Um, He's a Franciscan priest. I call him my favorite Franciscan. His name is Father Richard Rohr, and he runs a center in Albuquerque called the Center for Action and Contemplation, right? Contemplation is his word for meditation, his word for mindfulness. And so we started reading his books and we went to a couple of his conferences and he just made so much sense. And we started to read some other people in that area, including um, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And that was the first time I was 50, 50 to to 52 years old, that was the first time I realized that we are not our minds. Mm-hmm. And I started to practice or to explore this, this concept of, of focusing on our true selves. Who are we at our core instead of all the chatter that's going on in our minds? And that has revolutionized our lives for sure. 
Wow. Well, Richard Rohr is the person that made this difference for you. How do you spell his last name? R-O-H-R. R-O-H-R. Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr. So we can all look up more information about him. I expect there's a lot online. And so where did this go for you? Did you develop a a meditation practice of your own then? Well, you know, I I wish I could say that I had... um, an orthodox 20 minute sit meditation practice, which is in fact exactly what Richard Rohr teaches. Um, But I am not quite that disciplined. I still aspire to that. So for me, what enables me to be mindful comes right out of my comeback formula Um, to practice gratitude. You know, we're taught by our spiritual teachers to uh, to focus on our breathing, to come back to breath. You know, the Vietnamese priest, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, tells us just come back to your breath, right? We discovered him too. We didn't know. Um, and and I, I think that is so valuable, that that is the mind-body connection that calms down our vagus nerve and tells our body, you're okay. You're, you're mm-hmm. okay in this moment. You're not racing down the hill, running from the fire anymore, right? Right. And so that's part of it. And I add to that coming back to gratitude. If I can, this is the first uh, step in the comeback formula, come to a place of gratitude, because we know through experience and through research, positive psychologists have amassed this huge body of research on called resilience. And what we know from hundreds of studies is that if we can think of one little tiny thing to be grateful for, even in the midst of a world of hurt. It begins that healing and that growth process. It keeps us from getting stuck in the quicksand of bitterness and blame and grief. It allows us to process and move out of it on schedule, whatever our schedule may be. So gratitude is my chief mindfulness practice, I would say. I I wake up in the morning and I say, thank you, God, for this new day. Thank you that I'm here and I ground myself in the moment. Thank you that uh, I have this beautiful house on the mountain to live in because we did rebuild and go back. And thank you that I'm, I'm healthy, that I have this family. I mean, I just go down my list, right? And that is a mindfulness practice for me. So gratitude is the center core of the comeback formula. Is that it? Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, I would say it's it's the best place to start. Although the comeback formula is not a linear process, you just jump in wherever you can. Some people have told me, you know, I after I got injured and lost my job I, and couldn't work, I, I couldn't go to gratitude. It took me a long time before I could get mm-hmm. there. So don't worry about the the sequence, but there are five steps in the comeback formula. And really what they are is buckets that I created. I synthesized the research that I read about, and I created these five buckets. We could put every finding into somehow all these different findings about what builds our resilience. And that's what we're talking about because resilience is not just an innate trait that we all have. We do have it, but it's also a a skill set we can build like a muscle. And these are the proven ways through science and experience of building it. Gratitude is number one. And that is the first part of the comeback formula, come to a place of gratitude. And then the next four steps follow the letters B-A-C-K and in back. 
B stands for being patient with the pain. We already touched on that. It's, it's going, you're going to be in the quicksand for a while. Deep wounds cannot heal overnight. You can't lose something precious to you and just bounce back immediately. And I've seen, I've seen different online gurus talking about bounce back instantly from any, no, that's, that's a bunch of rubbish. You cannot bounce back instantly. You need to sit with the pain. The pain is teaching us too, right? So be patient with the pain. It's going to come and go. It's going to take as long as it takes. And yet the second part of B is to believe that it is possible to come back because we are resilient by nature. Resilience is in our DNA. We are part of a resilient universe. And of course we are going to come back. We can also smooth and speed that journey by practicing these, these uh, principles. So that's the B part is be patient with the painting yet believe that you can come back. You've come back before, you've seen other people come back, you can too. A, A is the tough one, Bruce, especially okay. for my emergency responders. A is to ask, to accept help first, to accept the help that's being offered to you. Okay. And to be tough enough to ask for it when we need it. So to accept and ask for help. This is this was hard for me. I didn't this want to be anybody's charity case, right? Yeah. It's hard for men who have been told we're you know, you're supposed to be independent, you're supposed to be mm -hmm. the provider, you're not supposed to need any help. It's really hard for our emergency responders. How do you call 911 when you are 911? Mm -hmm. So here's what I tell them that helps with that and it helps us too, right? And tell them about the hero's journey. And I'm sure you're probably familiar with Joseph yes, Campbell's hero's journey, right? Not yes. everybody is, but Joseph Campbell was this wonderful mythologist who looked at many of the foundational um, legends and stories from cultures across time. And he realized they were all basically the same story. It broke down into a set of steps and he called it the hero's journey. We know this story from popular movies like Star Wars. Luke Skywalker was a hero. You know, he was called from his everyday life to take on this big, huge, scary quest. He, he had to battle the forces of evil. He almost died in the process, but he didn't. And he came back with a gift for the people, right? This is the hero's journey. A really key, inescapable part of the hero's journey is accepting help from a mentor or guide like Luke had Obi-Wan and Yoda, or from your posse of friends, Harry Potter had Hermione and Ron in addition to Dumbledore and he had Hagrid. We see it with Dorothy and the good witch is her mentor and all the munchkins and her friends, the scarecrow and the tin man. It's the same story over and over again. So yes. what I tell our emergency providers is asking for help is not wimpy. It's wise. It's an essential part of the hero's journey. And you cannot be a successful hero without it. You wouldn't go out on a call without expecting backup as a law enforcement officer. You wouldn't go into a fire all by yourself without, without your strike team of other engines. So why do you think that um, we should have to soldier alone in, when it comes to resilience and emotional recovery from trauma? So that's right. the big one. 
It is a big one. And I just want to I just want to interrupt for a second to ask you about the difference here between men and women, because I've grown up in a culture where, you know, if if you're a guy, if you're a real man, you look after yourself, you do your own thing, you know, you don't reach out for help, you know. But yet women I know, they do. They go out for coffee and they talk about things and they ask each other for advice and for help. And and I think it's a cultural thing. And it's so hard to overcome that strong cultural belief that we've grown up in. Exactly. And, and that's why I said it's harder sometimes for men. I think it can be hard for women too, though, trying to compete in what has been a man's world in many cases, especially in male-dominated professions. Sure. Women tend to take on what is perceived as um, what are perceived as masculine traits, including, um, no, I'm good. I don't need help. And and I can remember that too from um, my earlier career in journalism where, where a manager asked me, how are you doing on that deadline? Do you need my help? Well, no, I don't want your help. I'm just fine. That was just, it was an insult, right? That I yes. couldn't do my own work on time and it was intended as an insult, and I take <laughs> it that way, right? So, yeah. so we, of course, we're um, we're pre-programmed not to want to ask for help. But here's the thing: we just have to look at that mindfully and question whether or not it's accurate. We are social creatures. So imagine um, bees, right? Bees are social creatures, they live in community, they work together to create their hives and to bring in the honey and to protect their queen. What happens to one bee all by itself? It dies. Of course. What happens to one bird without a flock? What happens to one wolf without a pack? We are equally created as social creatures. So it's unnatural for us to be the Lone Ranger, even though we we sometimes in our literature um, celebrate that. But, um, but more often, if you look at the hero's journey, you look at the people who have changed the world, usually after some personal adversity, people like the Dalai Lama and Malala and, and even Steve Jobs, you know, who was thrown out of his own company and ended up in the fetal position on a bare mattress on the floor where his friends found him before he came back to, to found Pixar and go back to Apple and create everything that, you know, that we depend on these days. So if you look at the bigger journey, you see that success comes through partnership and community. And in fact, community and connection is a huge resilience builder that comes under this, um, accept help and ask for it. And so does, uh, so does prayer. So does asking for supernatural help. Sometimes that could be a little bit more socially acceptable than asking for people's help because nobody has to know, right? Um, although if you push away people's help, maybe you're pushing away the answer to your prayer. There's that too. True. So is that <laughs> what the, is that what the C stands for? Community no, connection? No, no that, that, it could, be, but I, mm-hmm. I put community and connection under the accepting help and asking right. for it. Just being okay. a part of, of associating with people who want to support you in community, right? The right. C is the question of choice that we started with. And I discovered this probably early on when I was interviewing all these people. And I realized most of us, even most of us affected by the fire, even though we were being called victims by the media, you watch with the next 
the next disaster or the disaster du jour, there's always something. Yeah. The media and the public refer to the people who survived as victims, right? One of my friends said, we buried the victims. 12 of our neighbors died. We buried the victims and the rest of us are survivors. But there was a small um, subset of people who embraced the victim label, who were very proud to label themselves and introduce themselves as victims. And they were bitter and they were they were blaming other people. They they were miserable. They were negative. Um, some of them, I think, had prior experience that, that maybe positioned them for that. But what I noticed that was so curious to me, Bruce, was that it didn't seem to matter how much or how little they lost in the fire. Their attitude was independent of the level of their loss. For example, I talked with two mothers who had lost children, right? Back to that yeah. deepest, deepest possible loss. And they wanted to honor their children with scholarship funds. And um, they said our, uh, that would not honor our daughters to spend the, less, the rest of our lives being bitter and, and sad. They would want us to go on and be happy. And of one course. mother even said, the fire took so much from us. We are not going to let it take any more. Not our future, not our joy. Those were mm -hmm. mothers who had lost children. By contrast, I talked with a man, the most bitter man I met, um, who had lost his garage his house was safe his animals his family were all safe and that's when i discovered the c in the comeback formula the element of choice that even though we don't get to choose what happened to us always we can choose our response and for this my go-to mentor is victor frankl aptly named victor frankl who was an austrian psychiatrist um, imprisoned during the Holocaust, lost his entire family. And he came out of that and wrote this beautiful book, Man's Search for Meaning. You're familiar. I am. And this wonderful quote, do you know his quote about the last of the human freedoms? You'd have to remind me. The last of the human freedoms is the ability to choose our attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose our own way. And I thought, wow, if Viktor Frankl having come out of the greatest crucible of suffering, you can imagine, could say mm -hmm. this. And, it, and because it resonated with me, having lost my house and my possessions, I thought, this is universal truth. And in fact, the Stoic philosophers found it 2,000 years ago, and it's the subject of much of the 21st century research on resilience, this concept that we get to choose our way forward. I like to think of it as choosing your story. You can be the victim in a victim story if you want to be, or you can be a survivor and survivors, Bruce, have this sneaky way of turning into thrivers and givers, giving other people of their wisdom and their experience, and even changers who change the world, who leverage their personal loss into a legacy of blessings for others. That's the C. <laughs> That's fantastic. Isn't that great stuff? Yeah, it yeah. is great stuff. And oh man, that book, man, search for meaning. Isn't so it? incredibly powerful. Maybe mm -hmm. not necessarily as you read it, but as you digest the content, what he's saying and what he's going through. And then it just it just sort of penetrates itself into your mind and you start thinking about you know man like how is this possible that he yeah. lived through this and he didn't feel 
He didn't feel like he was a victim. He didn't create that victim story for himself. Quite the opposite. Right. I know. He's inspiring. Yeah. He's inspiring. So so we only have one more. One more. um, One more step. One more practice Mm -hmm. of the comeback formula. And uh, the K stands for keep moving forward. Mm. And the emphasis here is on forward. It's it's tough when we lose something so precious to us, when our life changes. Think about these people in Hawaii now and yeah. Guatemala and their, their villages are gone. The land is gone. The sense of place is gone. That's never coming back, no matter how much we wish it would. So yeah. we have to go the only direction which is open to us, um, really, which is forward. If we continue to move forward, if we keep moving forward, we can gradually, not overnight, gradually detach from this past that can never come back. And that frees us up, Bruce, to embrace the possibilities of the new future. All of the things I've already shared with you that I've learned, the opportunity to write my book, my deeper spirituality, the opportunity to be speaking about resilience and talking with you in this moment, um, here and now, all of that came as as a result of the new future that opened up to me, not just in spite of the fire, but because of it. A really key part of this keep moving forward into the new future is forgiveness, to forgive those who did or who in our perception may have had something to do with our loss, including ourselves. And if we cannot forgive until we forgive, we can't fully move forward. Across that bridge that I, that I could imagine early on in down that road, that untraveled road to all of these amazing new possibilities. So keep moving forward is the final step in the comeback formula. Wow, so powerful. And yes, forgiving ourselves. And that's so difficult to grasp sometimes when you're living it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like we can sometimes have even trouble forgiving others, but the hardest one is forgiving ourselves for sure. Well, I do. Yeah. I do want to move forward by asking you a question about bullying and whether you have a story where mindfulness would have made a difference if, if you had, you know, known or understood that at the time, do you have a story for us? Well, I have been thinking about that question that you, that you gave me a little, Heads up on. And, you know, I have been very fortunate in my life not to have been the the subject of bullying um, to much to to a great extent. I was, though. I mean, I already mentioned that there was that manager who was really hard. Are you going to meet your deadline? Um, I guess that was probably now that I think about it, the closest that I came to bullying. And um, she was out of control. Um, You know, the more I think about this in this mindful moment, the more I think that really was bullying. She was, um, she was bullying the entire team, our entire Mm -hmm. office. And eventually to the degree that she, uh, she got bounced out of her position, but not before she did a lot of damage. And um, that was before the fire. It was, you know, before I was able to learn these deeper lessons and I didn't really handle it well. You know, there were there was a time that I remember I was kind of toe to toe yelling. We, I mean, we were yelling back and forth. It was it was that bad. 
um, well, how could I not say I've never been bullied when I'd forgotten about this? Okay, so you brought it back. And uh, if I had been more mindful, certainly if she had been more mindful, that never would have happened. You know, I think mindfulness also leads us to compassion because if we are mindful of not just what is going on in the here and now with us, but with others around us, we can see the situation more from their perspective even if we don't agree with that perspective. And certainly there was not a lot of that. So had I been more mindful in those days, I probably would have let a lot more of that slide. I would not have been so personally offended and, and uh, defending myself, um, which really didn't do any good. Right. That makes sense. As we move toward the end of the interview, Sandra, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. You've already talked about some significant people who have had influence in your life. But this question is, who is one person who has influenced the mindfulness in your life? Well, again, I have to go back to Richard Rohr. He's the one who really opened the door for us uh, to Mm -hmm. see the faith that we had always um, grown up in uh, from a whole different, wider um, perspective that included mindfulness and contemplation. So he has got to be the answer to that question. Richard Rohr, my favorite Franciscan. I figured that's who you would say. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Sandra? Well, do we? No, 30 seconds, Bruce. We could do another (laughs) hour on this. You know, I I will say very briefly that for much of my life, um, because of childhood influences, I was plagued by anxiety and even Mm. depression. And mindfulness has enabled me um, to realize that most of that came from distorted thinking that was not anything relevant to the moment. That in the moment, I was just fine. And all of that other um, talk, self-talk, was really um, not even true. I didn't have to pay attention to that. And that really has has helped me be much more content and um, secure emotionally. Well, tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Breathing is so easy. And in fact, when I, when I do... Um, give keynotes and workshops on the comeback formula. This is one of the practices uh, that I recommend because it's easy and it's non-threatening. And there are all kinds of different ways, as you know, that are, are projected to do this and recommended. But if you just focus very simply on taking a deep breath in and holding it for just a second and then letting it out, it does calm us down. It's a physiological as well as a mental and emotional um, intervention that, and it's totally self-guided and possible. So yeah, breathing slowly and, and consciously and mindfully is a great, a great practice. What book would you recommend related to mindfulness? So I'm going back to Roar. Um, the book that I always advise people to start with of his, he's written a ton of them. I've written one he's written like 30 um is called everything belongs that's a great starting point for richard or everything belongs and it will give you a good overview of his um view of the world which is very liberating 
Everything belongs. And I'll put that in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. So you could check that out. Everything belongs by Richard Rohr. Is there an app of any kind that helps you to be more mindful? I've used a couple of apps in the past. There's there's a fun app out there called Headspace yes. that um, you know when I when I do um, want to sit for longer and um, and clear my mind and practice um, real meditation. That app has been very helpful for me. And um, another app that I have used is called um, um, what is the name of it? Oh, gee, it's escaping me. It's a music app and uh, Focus at Will. Focus at Will um, plays uh, music that has been engineered to to generate certain waves and brain waves that are conducive to calm and concentration. Sometimes I use that when I want to write something and I can't quite center down and focus on it. Excellent. Well, that's a good one to uh, to consider if you're trying to be creative and get something yeah. down. So thanks Music for that. Music can really help a lot in centering down and being creative. Yes, it can. Well, Sandra, how can we connect with you? How can we learn more about what you do? I would love for you to learn more about what I do. I, I do have a website, sandrayounger.com, which is easy to remember just my name. But if you want some goodies, go to my other site, which is comebackformula.com comebackformula.com and what you'll find there I'm actually just releasing this I'm releasing my comeback formula guidebook to the public under a creative commons license and this is uh, all of the five steps we talked about a little bit of the science behind it a little bit of my story and how I discovered it and some exercises that you can use right now and moving forward to implement these resilience building practices into your life to make them a part of your life, not just something you hear in one air and out another. And so that's at comebackformula.com. I'll be adding resources there too, as time goes by. And I am always available and interested in talking with people who want to hear more about this in talks or workshop experiences in their communities. Great to hear. Comebackformula.com. SandraYounger.com. So check it out. And, uh, you know, it's just been wonderful talking with you. And like, I just feel that you have so much vibrancy and you have so much commitment to helping people with their resilience that, you know, I think that you would be a wonderful person to work with, to build confidence and resilience and all those good things. So thanks so much for being on the show, Sandra. Bruce, it was um, an honor and a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for all you do. Really appreciate you. My pleasure. Bye now. Goodbye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or episode number into the search bar. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen. Maybe it's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever. Hit subscribe and share. Subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Subscribe and share, share, share. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, 
focus and happiness. Stay in the mode.